turn with me to John chapter 17. I know you always like hearing the next chapter number. It means we're making progress. And if all goes according to plan, we'll be finishing up the Gospel of John sometime around homecoming this year. So about October, uh, we'll move on to something else. But it's been good, hasn't it? I don't know if you like it, but I like it pretty good. Let's begin reading in John chapter 17, verse 1. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Would you pray with me once more? God, we come to you this morning humbly before your word, recognizing the weight of the glory that is in these few verses we've read this morning. God, I pray that you would open your word to us, open our eyes to see it. Give us hearts to receive your truth and to give you glory because you are glorious. So, Lord, I pray that your spirit would be at work this morning in this place, both in me as I preach this passage, explain these verses. Through me and in the hearts of the people who are before me and all those who hear. That we would see your glory, know that you are God, and worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. What do you think of, or what comes to your mind when I say to you this phrase, this title, the Lord's Prayer. Probably Matthew chapter 6 and Luke chapter 11. Those verses, that prayer that Jesus teaches His disciples that begin with these words, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Your name. That's often what we think of when we think of the Lord's Prayer. That's the title we've given to what Jesus gave His disciples as a model prayer for us. But it isn't really the Lord's Prayer, at least not in its entirety. In fact, Jesus could not have prayed that prayer because He was not a sinner. He was not 
sinful. He had no sin in him. He had nothing of which to ask forgiveness. He was not drawn towards sin. That's how Jesus taught us to pray. But what did Jesus pray? And we know actually very little about what Jesus prayed. We do know that He prayed. The Bible tells us that He prayed all night before He went out and chose His twelve disciples. Frequently we see Him early in the morning, rising before anyone else, and going into a place all by Himself, often on the top of a mountain, just to get alone and pray. Talk to His Father. He prayed for His disciples. You remember Peter. Jesus came to Him and said, Peter, Satan has desired to have you. He would sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you. Jesus prayed for His disciples. And we have very few glimpses into what Jesus actually prayed. What words He said when He came to the Father to pray. We do have some examples. We know that in Gethsemane, just before His crucifixion, He prayed, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from Me. But He prayed submissively because He also said, Nevertheless, not My will, but Thine be done. We get another glimpse into His prayer life when He's on the cross. He cries out that prayer when He feels the rejection of the Father as He experiences the wrath of God, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he prayed even for those who were killing him. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So we do have a few glimpses into the prayer life of Jesus, but not very much. And because we do know so little about what Jesus prayed, how He prayed, and because of that relationship between the members of the Trinity is in many ways a mystery to us, John 17 is a real treasure. The whole chapter. We've had all this teaching from chapter 13 through chapter 16 that Jesus has given His disciples on this night before His death. And He concludes this time together by praying and we get to hear what He prayed. It's as though we're in the room across from Jesus listening in on a private phone conversation. We get to hear Jesus, the Son of God, speak directly to God the Father. Now, as we work through this passage, you'll see that this prayer can be divided into three main sections. These first five verses, Jesus prays for Himself. And then in verses 6 through verse, 20, uh, verse 19, He prays for His disciples, the eleven who were there with Him. And probably the most awe-striking thing of all is that in verses 20 through 26, He prays even for us. Looking forward through time, knowing all who would believe His message and trust in Him, He prays not just for the disciples who are in the room with Him, but for all who would believe in Him. Jesus prayed for you on the night before His death. 
We'll look at those two sections in a couple of weeks to come, but for today we'll only consider these first five verses. But in introducing this chapter, I want to call attention to a couple of things that I think are very important. First, I think we should take notice of the obvious fact that Jesus prayed. (laughs) He prayed. So simple... Yet I believe it's important that we take notice. He's given these last words of instruction, His last night of teaching to His disciples before His death, and He prayed. Why did Jesus need to pray? Now we who teach and minister, and all who minister in whatever capacity, whether you stand behind a pulpit and preach, or whether you stand in a Sunday school room and teach, whether you have a personal discipling relationship with someone and you teach them the Bible one-on-one or one-with-two or in another small group, whether it's doing devotions with your children at home, whether it's just serving your neighbor in whatever way you minister, we must not be content to merely do. We must pray. You see, our teaching, our witnessing, our serving has absolutely no power at all unless that power comes down from heaven. We must, as Calvin said, implore the assistance of God in our work. If we ever hope that our labors will bear any fruit, if we ever expect any lasting spiritual fruit to come from anything that we do, whether individually or as a church, we must be a people who pray. We need God's help. If Jesus prayed, the very Son of God, God in the flesh, found it needful To find regular times to get by himself and pray. And even to gather with with his disciples, with others who believed in God, and pray. How much more should we have need of prayer? That's one thing I think we need to remember. The second thing that I want us to take note of as we come to this chapter is that this prayer comes in the context, not of sorrow, but of triumph. You see, chapter 16 ended on a high note. Verse 33 at chapter 16, he says, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. Why? I have overcome the world. Yes, the cross is coming. Yes, it's going to be a sorrowful couple of days. Yes, the disciples and us will have tribulation in the world, but we can take courage because Christ has overcome the world. He's certain of it. So when we come to this prayer, Jesus isn't praying a sorrowful prayer. He's praying a prayer in the context of triumph, of victory. Now you'll notice often in the course of this prayer that when Jesus refers to the work of His ministry, including His death on the cross... He speaks of it as though it's already in the past. It hasn't happened yet. This is the night before. But he prays about his substitutionary sacrificial work, his atoning work for us, as though it's as good as done. Jesus has no doubts that he will finish his mission. He will succeed in what he came to do. He will pray sorrowfully. 
in the Garden of Gethsemane. He will pray sorrowfully from the cross. But this prayer, this prayer that we're going to look at for the next three Sundays is a triumphant one. That's enough introduction. Let's get on with our work, right? Let's look at these verses. Verse 1, he says, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Now we've talked about this hour repeatedly through John's Gospel. It's used in a couple of ways. One, this hour that Jesus has been coming to, this hour Jesus has been looking forward to, is in one way the hour of His death. It is the period of time in which He will be betrayed, He will suffer, and He will die. But it's also the hour, not only of His death, but the hour of His glorification. That hour in which God approves of the work which He has done and will exalt Him and give Him glory. But though the, the hour is spoken of in a couple of different ways, that hour, the period of time, is one and the same. Because it's through His suffering, it's through His death, that He obtains, that He receives that glory. His time of suffering, His time of glorification are not separated, they're not opposed to one another, but they come together because glory comes through His suffering. So knowing that His hour has come, knowing all that's about to happen to Him, Jesus, believe it or not, only makes one petition on His own behalf. We've got a whole chapter here. We've got 26 verses of prayer. And Jesus only prayed for one thing for Himself. What was it? Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son. Glorify Your Son. Jesus prays for His own glory. That the Father would see Him through the events of His suffering and His death and glorify Him through it. Jesus prays for His glory. To what end? Why would He pray for His own glory? He says, that your Son also may glorify you. Even in Jesus praying for His own glory, He doesn't pray it for His own glory. He prays for His own glory so that through His glory He may give glory to the Father. Jesus has sought to glorify the Father in all things through His entire ministry and now He prays that even His own glorification will result in glory being given to the Father. And that's really the main point of this whole section, verses 1-5. through 5. Jesus prays that He would be glorified so that... So that He may glorify the Father. Now why would the Father answer such a prayer? Why, what makes Jesus worthy of having this prayer answered? Why should Jesus receive such glory? I think the next few verses explain that. I see three reasons here. It's not a good Baptist sermon without three points, right? Number one... He exercises His authority to grant eternal life. He exercises His authority to grant eternal life. Verse 2, He says, As you have given Him authority over all flesh, that He should give eternal life to as many as you have given Him. Jesus does have all authority. 
He said back in John chapter 3, verse 35, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hands. The Father has given Jesus all authority. His authority over all flesh, His authority over all things, is actually the very basis that He gives for us obeying the Great Commission. You remember Matthew 28, Jesus said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations. Why do we go? Why do we preach the gospel? Why do we baptize? Why do we teach? Why do we make disciples? Because Jesus has authority over all things. One, He has authority over us to give us the command to do so. If you're not obeying the Great Commission, if you're not making disciples, if you're not preaching the gospel, if you're being disobedient, it's because you're not acknowledging the authority of Jesus over you to give you that command. But not only does He have the authority over us to give us the command, but He has authority over those who do not yet believe. He deserves their worship. He has authority over the unbelievers and that's why we go to them. So that they will believe, so that they will trust Him, so that they will submit to His authority and be saved. He has authority over all creation, including the authority to judge. It is Christ, is it not, who will stand at the judgment before whom we will stand and give account. But what does He say in verse 2 that He does with His authority? That, another one of those purpose words, you've given Him authority over all flesh, that He should give eternal life to as many as you have given Him. He saves. He has authority over all flesh and He's chosen to use that authority to grant eternal life. Amen. I'll say it if you won't. He grants eternal life to sinners who deserve to die. He gives life. No one else has that authority. No one else can do what Jesus is doing and has done. Those whom He saves are referred to here as those who have been given to Him by the Father. And we covered that mostly back in chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 37, Jesus said, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I'll note by no means cast out. You who are saved are part of a special chosen people. You are a gift of love from the Father to the Son. And Christ has promised that all who are given to Him by the Father will come to Him. That's a promise. And in case you fear being excluded, He adds to that, and whoever comes to Me, I will by no means cast him out. Well, which is it? Does God choose us or do we choose Him? Does God choose those who will be saved? Does God have His people or do we come to Him in faith and believe? Yes. Yes. (laughs) If you desire to come to Christ, if you have seen the offense of your sin and the glory of the Christ who came to save, 
Come to Him. And if you come to Him, repenting of your sins, trusting in Him alone, He has promised He will never cast you out. And if you come and receive that gift of eternal life, you'll find also that God chose you before you ever thought of choosing Him. You too are a gift from the Father to the Son. Jesus came. He has authority that He should give eternal life to as many as the Father has given Him. And then He tells us what eternal life is in verse 3. He says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I don't know if you've thought about this much before, but everyone has eternal life. Everyone lives forever. So when Jesus promises to give eternal life to those who believe in Him, it has to be something more than just length of days. Unending existence. It isn't a quantity of days. Everyone will live forever. Every one of you will live forever. The question is not whether you will live forever, but it's the quality of that eternal existence. It's what kind of existence you will have forever. Jesus defines eternal life as knowing the Father and the Son. It's a relational knowing. You will live forever. The question is, what will your relationship to God be in your eternity? Will you hate Him as you burn in hell being punished for your sins because of His wrath against you? Or will you live forever in paradise, glorying, basking in His glory for His salvation and His forgiveness to you? The Westminster Larger Catechism, question 1 says, What is the chief and highest end of man? And the answer is given, Man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and to, to fully enjoy Him forever. That's what you were created for. To bring glory to God and to enjoy Him, to know Him fully for all eternity. That's what God has given us in salvation. Yes, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Not just living forever, but that you may know Him and love Him and be loved by Him and enjoy Him. You can have fellowship with God. In chapter 10, when he said, I came that they may have life and have it more abundantly. Jesus isn't promising that everything will go well for you and you'll have lots of stuff. But that abundant life is a life of fully knowing and enjoying God. It's a relational knowing. He has given us intimate, joyful fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. And it does only come through Jesus Christ. That's number one. Number two, He completed His mission on earth. He completed His mission on earth. Jesus has prayed for His own glorification that He may glorify the Father. 
But he also reflects on his life and his ministry. And he says in verse 4, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. Jesus, at the end of His earthly ministry, reflects and confidently knows that He has glorified the Father. He told the disciples in chapter 4, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me, to finish His work. Remember the disciples left and He spoke to the woman at the well and when they came back they brought food and He said, I have food to eat that you don't know about. They probably said, why did He send us to get food? <laughs> and Jesus says, my food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to finish His work. That was what He lived for. It was His bread. It was what sustained Him. It kept Him going, doing God's will. Jesus has done everything that He has done for the purpose of being obedient to the Father as a testimony to the world. Remember chapter 14, verse 31, "...but that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, so I do." Jesus came to do the Father's will. He has glorified the Father in His life. But this is also one of those instances where Jesus speaks as though His work is already finished. He's praying this prayer on the night before His death as though it was the night after the resurrection. He said, I've finished the work which you have given me to do. Yes, He's been obedient in life. Yes, He's been sinless so far. But Jesus knows that by the help of the Father and the Holy Spirit, He will finish His mission. And sure enough, John 19.30 records His words from the cross, It is finished. Jesus finished the work that God gave Him to do. Why else should God answer this prayer for glory? Number three, He possessed the glory of God in eternity past. He possessed the glory of God in eternity past. We must remember that when Jesus prays for His own glory, He isn't praying for something that He doesn't deserve. See, if I walked up to God and I said, God, give me glory. <laughs> I might get slapped or killed. You know why? Because I don't deserve glory. But Jesus can walk up to the Father and say, give me glory. And it's right. It's just. It is good that He should receive glory. In fact, He's not even praying for something that He's never experienced. In reality, He's praying that what He already had before would be restored to Him. He's not praying for some new glory that He's never had. He's praying that He would have His glory that He had in eternity past. Verse 5, He says, And now, O Father, glorify Me together with Yourself, or alongside Yourself, with the glory which I had with You before the world was. And I don't know that any...
verse in the New Testament more plainly testifies to the deity of Jesus Christ. If he prayed this and wasn't the Son of God, he deserved to be crucified. That's blasphemy. Glorify me alongside yourself. Satan wanted that and he got cast out of heaven. But Jesus deserves it because he is who he says he is. This isn't only a glory that Jesus deserved, it's a glory that he once enjoyed. Remember John chapter 1, he says, In the beginning was the Word, Jesus being the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus existed before the creation of the world. He existed eternally. Not just because He was with God, not because He was some creation of God, but because He Himself was and is God. He had His glory in all eternity past. It was a moment in time when He became a man and took on human flesh. Remember verse 14 of John chapter 1 as well. He says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word became flesh. Probably the best passage of Scripture on this topic is Philippians chapter 2. Go ahead and turn there. Philippians chapter 2. I feel like we've turned here a few times recently, but it's, it's worthy of our time. Paul wrote there beginning in verse 5, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery, to be equal with God. That is, he did not consider equality with God as something to be held on to. He already experienced that. He is and was God himself. He was equal with God. He did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. But verse 7, he made himself of no reputation. Your translation may say, he emptied himself. And that isn't that he set aside his deity... That's heresy. There are those who teach that, that Jesus being God set aside His being God so that He could become man. No, He retained all of His deity. He retained all of His godness. He emptied Himself. He humbled Himself by laying aside His glory. The benefits of living in heaven, worshipped by the angels night and day, as we read in Revelation 4. He made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant, of a slave, and coming in the likeness of men. That is the word becoming flesh. Verse 8, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. He already had that glory. He set it aside and humbled Himself to come do that mission. To come finish that work of salvation. This is what Jesus did. He didn't stop being God. He didn't lay aside His deity. He set aside His glory and added to Himself a human nature. 
But now, Jesus is praying that His glory be restored. That He be glorified alongside the Father. That He be given back that glory that He had before He ever became a man. So here's how the Father answered that prayer. We're still in Philippians 2, verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and given Him the name which is above every name. What is that name? What's that name that's above every name? It's not Jesus. He says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those on earth, of those under the earth, that every tongue should confess. What is that name? That Jesus Christ is Lord. He is Lord. Oh, look at that. To the glory of God the Father. Jesus' prayer that He would be glorified so that the Father would be glorified through Him is answered. And Paul tells us about it right here in Philippians 2. He is exalted. God did answer that prayer. He ascended back to the Father. He's seated again on His throne. He rules over all creation. He is glorified and He did it all to the glory of God the Father. Now that's a lot of propositional truth we've talked about for the last half hour. So what? Yeah, we might have learned something. That's nice. What does it have to do with us? Let me give you two things quickly. Number one, Jesus is worthy of our worship. Jesus is worthy of our worship. We sang it just this morning. Majesty. Worship His majesty. Unto Jesus be all glory, all honor, and all praise. Majesty. Kingdom authority flows from His throne unto His own. His anthem raise. So exalt. Lift up on high. This is a command to you, by the way. Exalt. <laughs> lift up on high the name of Jesus. Magnify. Come glorify Jesus the King. Majesty. Worship His majesty. Jesus who died, now glorified. King of all kings. Jesus is worthy of our worship. You should worship Jesus. That's the so what. Number two, let us follow His example in seeking the glory of God. We must worship Jesus, but also let us follow His example in seek, seeking the glory of God. We seek it in all things. Whether it's in some kind of ministry here in the church, whether it's in some act of service in the community, whether it's in the act of sharing the gospel, whether it's in making your kid a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, everything that you do, do all to the glory of God. And let us seek His glory in all things, but let us seek it through prayer. We are a powerless people without divine help from God. We need power. We need God Himself 
to give us the strength to do what He's called us to do. So let us worship Jesus. Let us seek the glory of God in all things. And let us do it all through prayer. Amen. Would you stand with me and pray? Lord, these are glorious truths in Your Word. May they be rooted deep in us. May we hold firmly to them, knowing that Christ is who He says He is, and that He is worthy of our worship and obedience. And God, may that truth of Your own glory affect our lives practically in everything that we do. May we obey You. May we glorify You. May we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.